So tonight we're going to discuss the third verse of the Chaitanya Charitamrita. It appears in the first chapter and in the second chapter. The first chapter it appears in the context of the Mangala Charan, which are the verses that constitute an auspicious invocation. And there it's explained by Krishna's Kaviraj Goswami that this verse, the third verse, is the what's called the Vastunirdesh Shloka of Chaitanya Charitamrita. The first and second verse, the second of which we discussed, were both called Namaskar Shlokas, Shlokas that constituted offering respect and obeisances to the to the deity. The Vastunirdesh Shloka, which is another element of a Mongol charn, is uh, the verse that it describes the, the essence of the book, what it's about. And here in the second chapter, the verse appears again, as I mentioned, and it appears there because here in the second chapter he's going to explain the meaning of the verse. So the whole second chapter is basically an explanation of the verse. So it's an important verse. Let's hear it. Yad adduitam brahmopanishadi tarapya Ya atmantaryami purusha itiso sham shavibhava sad aishvaya purna sa iha bhagavan sasaya mayam nachetanyat krishna jagati paratatvam paramiha. Now, surely when I read the translation, you'll understand the significance of this verse. What the Upanishads describe as the impersonal Brahman is but the effulgence of his body. And the Lord, known as the Super-Soul, is but his localized plenary portion. Lord Chaitanya is the Supreme Personality of God himself, full with six opulences. He is the Absolute Truth, and no other truth is greater than or equal to him. So, this should bring to mind some other verses from books that this book is very much derived from. Important verses. Can you name one? Mm-hmm. What's the third line? Mm-hmm. That's right, yes. And now, who knows where that verse comes from? Maternoth is smiling, he must know. <laughs> Now he's crying. <laughs> <laughs> this verse comes from where? Take a guess. Rampriya. Yes. Very good. Which is one of the principal books that this book is derived from. This book is the distilled essence of Srimad Bhagavatam. Bhagavatam is the supreme pramana or form of revelation that uh, the Gaudi Vaishnavas look to as evidence to support their experience and their doctrine. Srimad Bhagavatam is not only the Gaudi Vaishnavas supreme form of revelation and evidence and demonstrates how they know what they know, 
But amongst the body of revealed knowledge that's available to us in the world in the form of sacred texts and so forth, objectively speaking, Bhagavatam is the most rich, theologically and philosophically rich book. I mean, if we were to compare objectively in the greater world, religious world, you have Quran, for example, which we don't really consider in the same light as we do the Vedas, but for a particular group of people, it's their main book of revelation. The Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. Of course, the Buddhists, though they have Lotus Sutra, something like that. So these are some of the principal texts that in a broader sense are considered revelation. So very objectively, if we were to compare the Bhagavatam, far exceeds them in its depth and richness, the language, from a literary point of view, it's 18,000 verses of, of Sanskrit poetry, almost 18,000 verses. Nigama kalpataro galitam phalam shukumukadam tadrabhasambhutam pipatabhagavatam rasamalayam muhurahorasikabhuvibhavuka. This is a kind of language of the Bhagavatam. It says who it's meant for, what kind of people. And we heard yesterday also the second verse of Bhagavatam, Nirmat Saranam Satam. It's not for people who need to know, don't kill, don't steal, don't chase after your neighbor's wife. It's for people who are not envious and pure in heart. Satam is another name for devotee. It means truthful. There's personal integrity, honesty, and so forth. And then, within the greater body of the Hindu sacred books also, there's nothing to compare with that. There are, I think, 18 Puranas, 18 Mahapuranas, and there are many Upa Puranas, or kind of secondary Puranas. Many of them extol the virtues of Sriman Bhagavatam, point to Bhagavatam as the emperor amongst many reigning kings and the Vedas and the Upanishads and so forth, yes, they are very abstract and kind of broader in their scope and focus and so forth. Bhagavatam is, is very pointed in what it's about and goes kind of right to the heart of the whole thing. After all, it was compiled by Vyasadeva after he compiled everything else. Vyasadeva was the editor-in-chief of the um, Vedic literature and a group of sages, rishis, helping him. He oversaw the whole project of their, their manifestation in literary form. And after he compiled all of the Vedas, he was feeling still a little bit unsatisfied that he hadn't just really come out and said it, something like that. And Narada, his guru, appeared on the scene and said, this is the problem. You basically wasted your time having written what you did, having compiled what you did, and so forth, without just coming out and saying it. Now, once you say it, those other books will have some value also, relative value. They derive their value, in one sense, from the central hub of the scripture, from the heart of it all, Srimad Bhagavatam. So he compiled the great book, Srimad Bhagavatam, and how did he do it? Well... Nara told him, look, you're educated fellow and spiritually advanced, sit down and 
meditate on Krishna's pastimes. Samadhi nanusmula tadvijeshtitam, he said. So Vyasa sat down and meditated on Krishna. And then in Samadhi, he saw the whole thing. He saw the world, which can be explained, reality, which can be explained metaphysically as achintya veda veda. He saw like that. He saw maya, and he saw the Lord in his internal shakti. He saw the jivas struggling under the influence of maya. He saw the means for their deliverance, bhakti. He saw the ideal, goloka, and so forth. And this way then he came to external consciousness and he compiled Srimad Bhagavatam. So you have to understand, in the world, this Srimad Bhagavatam is an extraordinarily uh, significant book. Not that many people know about it, perhaps, who you meet and whatnot, but it doesn't change the fact that it's a very important book. Sometimes important books get left on the shelf because people have what they think are more important things to do, preoccupied as they are, driven by their minds and, and senses. After all, this is a book that seeks to harness the mind and the senses. So what I mean to say to you is that, that amongst books in the world, there are many, but this is an extraordinary book because it's a body of revealed knowledge. It came out of the spiritual samadhi or trance of a very uh, extraordinary uh, legendary figure. So there aren't too many of those. There are some, as we say, some revealed. It comes not from thinking. It's not that he sat down, got his PhD, and wrote a dissertation, something like that. And that's not a bad thing to do. But this came from a whole different process, process that mandated a certain purity of heart and so forth. So who was the person, who was the author, what was his condition? What, it's to be understood that the things that he wrote about, he had, he had realized. So it's a very, very important book, Srimad Bhagavatam. And our lineage, our disciplic succession, has pointed that out like no one else. This is our task. We should have to let people know what such a book exists. Bhaktisiddhanta Sarsati Thakur was a learned person and of the opinion that if all the books, this is very radical, but it did come from his lotus mouth, if all the books in the world were burned and only the Srimad Bhagavatam were left, there wouldn't be any loss. Hmm? Now, he wasn't a book burner, and he didn't go advocate doing that, but he just wanted to make the point emphatically how much is there in Srimad Bhagavatam. The task, of course, is to speak about it in such a way that people pay attention and go in there and try to find out what's in there. And of course, as I said, it will be understood, that message, in the company of a person, Bhagavat, who realized the message who personifies its teaching. So our group, our little group called the Gaudi Vaishnavas, we are trying to make this point to the world that such literature exists. It's very extraordinary. And while there are other books of revelation and books of spiritual insight and so forth, if they are to measure up to this, they've got a long way to go, objectively speaking. So, this book the Gaudiyas have attached themselves to. It was like Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's very heart, Srimad Bhagavatam. As I said, he used to hear it daily from Gadadhar Pandit reciting Srimad Bhagavatam. We can hear it over and over and over again and draw newer and newer, fresher meaning all the time. Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur has said in one place that the Bhagavatam is like a Vaikuntha planet. 
in this world but untouched by the world's influence. You can live inside the pages of this book. So, now, Gurnishtam, who has quoted a verse from Srimad Bhagavatam that he thinks sounds similar to this one, and he's correct, that verse, Vadanti tat tatvavidas tatvam yad jnanam advayam brahmeti paramatmeti bhagavan iti shabdite. So you understand the meaning, right? Some of it. How it parallels this verse. The verse says, learned persons have determined that the ultimate reality is non-dual consciousness, known variously as Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan. Let me read the meaning, the translation of the verse here that we are discussing once again, so that you can see the parallel. What the Upanishad described as impersonal Brahman is but the effulgence of his body. The Lord, known as the Paramatma, is his localized plenary portion. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is the Supreme Personality of God, Krishna himself, Bhagavan, Swayam Bhagavan. He is the absolute truth, and there is no truth greater than or equal to him. You see the parallel, right? Now, that verse of Srimad Bhagavatam, which parallels this verse, this verse is the Vastunudesh Shloka of the Chaitanya Charitamrita, what the, the book is essentially about, the essence of the book. This book is the distilled essence of Srimad Bhagavatam. So we can understand that that verse from Bhagavatam is a very important verse. And the Chaitanya Charitamrita is, as I said, the distilled essence of the Bhagavatam. It's helping us to understand to center in on what is the essence of the Bhagavat. So this is a certainly precious text. These things we have on our shelves, <laughs> they create an auspicious environment in the house, and if we read them, then it will be good for us. See how they are connected. Kaviraj Krishnadas, he's following the Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, six Goswamis. Their books are all drawn from Bhagavatam. The Tattva Sandarbha of Jiva Goswami, the last verse of the Mangala Charan, the auspicious invocation of Tattva Sandarbha, also parallels this verse. Now we can see Krishna's Kaviraj. He understood from Tattva Sandarbha, the Satsandarbha of Jiva Goswami, oh, how this verse of Bhagavatam is so important. And so, taking that lead, he's composed his verse along the same lines. The book must be about the same thing. That verse of Srimad Bhagavatam, that this verse follows or parallels in many respects, the Satsandarbha is six, Sat means six, Sandarbha means like essays. Six essays by Jiva Goswami, our Tattva Acharya, means he's the young man who, under the direction of Rupa Goswami and Sanatana Goswami, best uh, articulated the philosophy of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, his theology. And he did so primarily in his treatise, Satsandarbha. They're six essays. The Bhagavat Sandarbha, the Paramatma Sandarbha, and to some extent it's also Krishna Sandarbha, which are three of them in Tattva Sandarbha, are based on this verse. That's four of them. There are only six. So all these essays, lengthy essays, coming primarily out of this verse. It's a very important verse to us.
So Krishna does cover Goswami, you can see he's following his predecessors very carefully. Hmm? He says, Yadadvetam, let us discuss it. Brahmopanishadi tadapiyasyatunubha. So first he says, there is a, an aspect of reality, ultimate reality, the absolute truth, that's talked about largely in the Upanishads. And they're referred to as, the absolute is many times often largely referred to as Brahman and described as Advaita, non-dual. Advaitam Brahmupanishadi he says something about that. He gives the subject and then he gives the predicate. He says, the Upanishads talk about the supreme Brahman, non-dual, the absolute in terms of being undifferentiated. And uh, he says, what about it? He said, that actually, what they're talking about there, is actually to be understood like this. It is the tanuba. It is the halo of Krishna. It's his aura. Then he says, well, let's discuss this a little bit. We should, uh, the Upanishads are very terse and how Prabhupada knows them very well. He's translated the principal Upanishads. There it is. All you Swedish-speaking devotees should have a copy. I'd like to have a copy too, but even though I don't speak the language. I, Shruti, Anishad, Ujjayi. Te, De, Tidiga, Upanishad, Derna. The early Upanishads. Uh-huh. Very good. So there in the Upanishads, there's much talk about the absolute described as Brahman being non-dual and being, well, without differentiation, it's one, it's not one, it's not like the many that causes problems in the world, differences and variety and so forth, like we were talking the other night. What's happy for you may be sad for me, what's hot for you may be cold for me. So we have these differences, so we're at odds with one another. This is all coming from the mind. So the Upanishads say, hey, don't deal with that. You'll never find any peace or satisfaction there in that world of the mind. You're always going to be at odds with someone. Go above the mind. Go beyond the mind. There you'll find peace and serenity. You'll find unity, common ground. You'll find the basic stuff that, that everything's made out of and that endures. And this other world of, of appearances is just that. It's a world of appearances, here today and gone tomorrow. And problematic for us. And to help us understand that, Brahman, the Upanishads tell us things like, if you want to know what it's like, then look to yourself. It even says things like, you are that. You are Brahman. If you want to know. If you want a frame of reference, you are Brahman. So, what does it mean? This is the beauty of our civic succession. That nana shastra vicharane kanipano sat dharma samastapago lokanam hitakarano tribhuvane manu sharanakaro. These Goswamis, they drew from this broad base of revealed scripture, 
and sorted all these kind of statements out. This is the important work of Vyasa when he wrote the sutras. But there are many types of interpretations of the sutras also. The Gosamis, like Deva Gosami, they went to Bhagavatam, which is a natural commentary on the sutras by the author. And they were able to very much tie the whole thing together. Because it looks like maybe in the Upanishads it's saying that you're, you are Brahman. But over here in the Puranas it's talking about serving Brahman. So how, if there's only one and you are that, and where's the opportunity for service? And so different philosophies come up and so forth. So they've harmonized the whole thing. And they've helped us to understand that what the Upanishads are talking about, they're talking about it to us in a very kind of basic way, in a beginning way. After all, the Upanishads come at the end of the Vedas. They're about the conclusion in one sense. After becoming religious, inquiring about how to be religious, dharma jignasya, then you can make brahma jignasya, inquiry into Brahman. The Goswamis are making inquiry into rasa. Brahman as rasa. Let's look at Brahman really, really deeply, is their idea. And they go so high with that. So they're saying that the Upanishad is a little shy to go too far here. Upanishads, Vedas, these are all sounds, right? These are all sound vibrations. Vyasa compiled them and so forth, put them into literary form, but there it's revealed sound. So of all the revealed sounds, one sound is most complete and powerful. What is that sound? Two syllables. Krishna. That's right. Krishna. Krishna. Rupa Goswami has said in his Namastakam that all the sounds of the Upanishads, they're like um, jewels, and the jewels have an effulgence, and they're all shining, shedding light on one sound, Krishna Nam, and its revelatory power, its power to reveal. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and the Goswami's following, they've just captured that one sound. They've just attached themselves to that one sound. And then based on that one sound, they got all this insight, what all the other sounds mean. Put them all together. They thought, it's all about sound. This one sound is the most important sound. It's the most complete nomenclature, as Prabhupada used to say, for the absolute. So we just sing that sound and see what happens. And all the Rodi Vaishnava's theory and doctrine and philosophy, theology, all coming out of that. And writing about that sound in his Namastakam means uh, eight prayers of glorification of the name of Krishna. Rupa Goswami said like this, that all the sounds of the Upanishads are like jewels that are cast in their light, uh, their glare, their shine, their effulgence, pointing to this one sound, Krishna Nam. So they're speaking in kind of an indirect way to us, and they tell us, Absolute is Brahman. It's non-dual. Not like the world of forms and names here today and gone tomorrow. Differences of opinion and so forth. You can't get along with everybody. Not like that. If you want to understand what it's like in terms of experience, look to yourself. You are Brahman. So what does it mean? It means that if there's anything in this world that most resembles Brahman, it's you. Because you are consciousness, not matter. So you're most similar to that. If I'm living in a cave with you, dark cave, for a long time, and then I make my way outside through a tunnel, 
and you don't know about it, and I go out and I see the sun. When I see the sun, what do I see? I see plants growing, flowers. And the whole world is vitalized by the sun. Now, you and I, we've been living in a cave all our life, in the darkness. How am I going to explain what the world above is like? My friend, his frame of reference, like mine was, was just dark walls. Maybe here, some trickle of water or something. Something moves. Rocks. What am I going to... I just saw the whole, whole world above. I mean, how will I explain that? What can you say about it? This is the idea. We're living in a material world. What can be said about Vaikuntha? How will you introduce this subject? The whole living world. We're in the world of the dead. So coming back into the cave, make a little hole where I know a little light will come through. A crack of light comes through. So that's the world outside. This. It's like this. It gets some idea, but when it goes there, what all this can do and where it, how it's just one ray of the sun and what the whole sun does brings about vegetation and life. You can't explain all of that. So the Upanishads are trying in a basic way to say, you are that. In other words, you are a ray of consciousness. Brahman is consciousness. So you're that. That's what it's like. Look at yourself. Then you know something about it. Look at yourself beyond mind and body and so forth as a unit of consciousness. You get some idea what it's like. But just attaching oneself to those statements, then that becomes a problem. One thinks, I am Brahman entirely. But that's not the whole story. You're a ray of the son of Brahman. So here, Krishna's Kabarish Goswami is saying that some philosophers, they like the Upanishads very much and they <coughs> like all these statements about Brahman being non-dual that it has no form. You see, it's speaking to us who are living in the world of forms, and all these forms, they're here today, as I say, and gone tomorrow. So it's not like that. It has no form. It means no form like this, the forms you're accustomed to. The introductory way of speaking about it has no form. So then you think, oh, it's nothing like any of these forms in the world that are temporary, our bodies get sick and old and die. And there's nothing, nothing to do with that. Let's give some introductory idea. This is what those statements are about. And although that may be largely the voice of the Upanishads, there are other statements there that, that also start to speak about the difference that's present in Brahman and between the jiva and Brahman. But some people attach themselves to these kind of louder statements, or they, they make a philosophy like Shankar and took some of those statements and said, these are the main statements. And he was a powerful fellow, and so many people attached themselves to that idea and so forth. But what Kaviraj Goswami is saying here is that Brahman, that some people think is everything, and, and then that the Absolute is formless and nameless and undifferentiated consciousness, one, still, peaceful, he said, that's only an aspect of the non-dual reality. What aspect? That's the aura of the ultimate non-dual reality. And then he says, there's another aspect, too, of that non-dual reality, Advaigyan Tattva. 
and that's the Paramatma. He says, Atmantaryami Purusha Itisho Shamsa Vibhava. The Paramatma is like another moment in the absolute life of the absolute. These are like phases or aspects. And different types of transcendentalists are attached to them. The Ganis are attached to the Brahman effulgence. They don't see it as the effulgence or the aura of Krishna. They're blinded, Upanishads say, in another place, by the dazzling light. What is that? Satyasya pihitam mukam. Blinded by the light of Brahman, they cannot see the face of Krishna. Then there are the yogis who worship the Paramatma, the indwelling soul, the oversoul. There's three aspects to the Paramatma. We talked a little bit about Paramatma the other day when we, when we talked about creation. The first aspect of the Paramatma is called Sankarshan. Another name for him is Mahavishnu. Another name for him is Karunadakshai Vishnu. He is singular. There's one of him. And what does he do? He's lying in the Karana ocean. He's lying in water. Life comes from water, right? That's what the scientists tell us. Life comes from water. He's lying in the water. Special kind of water. They say life comes from water and life at its end turns to heat. You probably know that. Educated people that you are. And Bhagavatam also says the world ends with heat. Comes from water, ends with heat. So this Karanadakshai Vishnu is lying in a causal ocean kind of water. This is how the Rishis have envisioned him. And he's the one that glances. Krishna speaks about him in the Gita, this aspect of himself, the Paramatma. Tasam Brahma Mahadyoni Rahambija Glancing at the material nature, I impregnate her with the seed of consciousness. That's called Shiva. Shambhu, Shiva, consciousness. He injects consciousness into the Pradhan, into matter, and it agitates it and starts it in motion. So, as we heard earlier, this consciousness, this is driving the movement of matter. Its necessity in relation to matter causes matter to move and take shape and grow to evolve. So this, uh, this is one aspect of the Paramatma. And then there's another aspect, and that is that he expands to enter each of the universes which have emanated just like drops of perspiration from the pores of the Mahavishnu, the Sankarshan, the Karnadakshai Vishnu, that one personality. So millions of universes. And he expands into every universe. It's called Garbodakshai Vishnu. He lies on another ocean called the Garbo, Garbodaka Ocean. And from him, then, the universe gets put in order on so many planets. And through Brahma, he gives Brahma the power, creative power and so forth. And, and then he expands further. Another name for that Garbodakshai Vishnu is uh, Pradyumna, Sankarshan Pradyumna. Then he expands further as Aniruddha, also known as Shiradakshai Vishnu lives in an ocean of kheer, sweet rice, without the rice, just a sweet 
condensed milk, something like that, and enters into every heart of every jiva and every atom of existence. So he's everywhere and local and everywhere. This is the Paramatma feature. So Krishna Kaviraj Goswami says, this Paramatma, that is his partial expansion, Yadmantaryami, and then he speaks about the next feature. What is that? We talked about Brahman, Paramatma. What is the next one? Bhagavan. Right. He says, Sad Aishwarya Purna, who is, Bhagavan is described as having six opulences. Who knows what they are? Things that make a person attractive. Does he have any money? Can he support me? All right. Can she support me? So wealth, fame, strength, wealth, strength, fame, beauty, knowledge, and renunciation. These are called Sadaishwarya. So Bhagwan has these in full, and therefore he's called all attractive. Translated into Sanskrit means how do you say all attractive in Sanskrit? No, it's one word, Krishna. Yeah. <laughs> Krishna means all attractive, irresistible. He says it now. Here he really clarifies the statement of Srimad Bhagavatam. And he does so following the lead of Jiva Goswami in Tattvasandarbha. Because in Bhagavatam it says that the Absolute Truth is non-dual consciousness, known variously as Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan. And he's saying that that non-dual consciousness is Krishna. He's pointing that out. That if you study Bhagavatam, you see that uh, Krishna is the absolute truth and he's known variously as Bhagavan. That means Narayan and Vaikuntha is Bhagavan. Narayan and Vaikuntha is also known as Vasudev. Then he's known as the Paramatma, as Sankarshan, Pradyumna, and Aniruddha, or Mahavishnu. Garbhadaksha Vishnu, Shirdaksha Vishnu, different names, as we've explained. And he's uh, also known as Brahman. Who knows him by these different names and in these different ways? Different types of transcendentalists. The jnanis know him as Brahman. And the yogis know him as Paramatma. And the devotees know him as Bhagwan. And the devotees who know him as Krishna know that his vilas, his playful expansion in Vaikuntha is Narayan and all of the avatars of Narayan who appear through the Garbhodakshai Vishnu in each universe to, to liberate the people and so forth. They know that and they know that he's partially manifested as Paramatma overseeing the world in so many respects. And they know that Brahman is his effulgence. So they know all these things about Krishna. Now, Krishna's Kavrash Goswami is saying one thing more here. He's not saying something that's not in the Bhagavatam when he says that Krishna is the non-dual consciousness known variously as Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan. That's in the Bhagavatam. It's not fully in that verse, but if you unpack the verse, which Bhagavatam is basically an unpacking of that verse in many respects, then it can be drawn from that. Of course, there's another important verse in Bhagavatam, Krishna's too Bhagavan Swayam. That helps us to understand this point. But Krishna is the Swayam Bhagavan. 
Swayam Bhagavan means the source of Bhagavan himself. In the narrative of the Leela, Krishna Leela, it's also revealed that Krishna is Brahman, Krishna is Paramatma, Krishna is Bhagavan. Who knows where? That's right. Nanda Maharaj was kidnapped by the assistance of Baruna because when they went on pilgrimage and he, they thought that he bathed at the wrong time and so they grabbed him and took him down to their master, Baruna, Lord of the Waters. So Krishna was awakened and he went down to save him. And when he went down there, then Baruna offered obeisances to him. He said, Om Namo Bhagavate something Dubyam Paramatmane Brahmane, Paramatmane. You offer my obeisance to you. You are Brahman. You are Paramatma. You are Bhagavan. Might have just passed by that shloka, but not Jiva Goswami. He took that out. So see, here it's being said right here. In the Leela, it's being demonstrated. And so many other ways he shows in the Sandarva that Krishna is that Swayam Bhagavan, the very source of expressions of Bhagavan and from whom the Paramatma comes, and that Brahman is, is his aura. Now, what is the extra thing here that we find? Two things. One is that, from the Bhagavatam verse, one is that he's explicitly saying that Krishna is the Advaigyantattva, the non-dual consciousness, ultimate reality, known variously as Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan. It's not explicit in the verse of Bhagavatam. But that's one thing he's done. And... What's the second thing he's done? Let me refresh your memory here. He says, What the Upanishads describe as impersonal Brahman is but the effulgence of his body, and the Lord known as the Supersoul is but his localized plenary portion. Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Krishna himself, full with six opulences. He is the absolute truth, and no other truth is greater than or equal to him. So what is the second extra thing he said here? Shamgopal. Introducing Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. He's saying that not only is Krishna that Advaigyantattva, but Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who is the son of Nanda Maharaj, this is, you have to understand, this is a huge statement. You mean the son of Nanda Maharaj? That cowherd? Butter thief? Womanizer? Village? Just, he's the ultimate reality? And Bhagwan, Paramatma, and Brahman are aspects of himself? This is like revolutionary. It's shocking. This is the insight of the, of the Goswamis. And now, for to shock you further, he's appeared again as Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, singing and dancing in Sankirtan. And he is the exact same Krishna himself. His flute has become a Madanga. He's singing Krishnanam in Kirtan. And, of course, this is the tattva of the Chaitanya Charitamrita. There's another aspect of this book called the bhava, the ecstasy of it. That's when we start hearing about how, how he's in the mood of Radha and all these things. But this has to be established first. This is the essence of the book in terms of tattva. The Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is Krishna himself. Then we'll get into... Well, what the heck is Krishna doing here, uh, dressed like that? 
And if we can go as far with you as that, okay, Krishna is the Supreme Personality of God. Okay, if we can get that far, then how do we go to this next step that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is the same Krishna and he looks different and he's... You're saying he's not an avatar of Krishna. If he was an avatar, then, oh, that might... Okay, we can go with that. But you're saying he's exactly the same, but he looks different. He's golden in complexion and Krishna's dark in complexion. How are they the same? Krishna's a cow herder. And this Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is, is a Brahman. And their activities are different. And the Gis Goswamis, then what do they do? They're showing, oh, look at all the parallels. Just see. And what is the difference? What is the difference between Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and Krishna? It's just that Krishna is in a specific mood. He has a necessity to explore the measure of love exhibited in Radha. So this, of course, then the theology develops and the bhava of the Chaitanya Charitamrita comes out. But first he has to establish, our author, that Krishna is the Supreme Personality of God and that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is that same Krishna. And as the Brahman will be known by the jnanis, by their approach, and as Paramatma will be known by the yogis, by their approach, and as Bhagwan will be known by the devotees and the devotional approach, so Krishna and the fact that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is Krishna will be known, experienced, and their Leela, both of them, will be participated in by particular practice of bhakti, a special kind of bhakti. We'll hear about that in up- upcoming discussions of the, of the next verse. So another way to think about these things, these aspects of the absolute truth, is something like this. We say that reality exists, but you can have a reality that exists, something that exists that's not cognizant of itself. But if your reality is cognizant of itself, then it must exist, right? Now, you can have a reality that's cognizant of itself, but it's not joyful. But if your reality is joyful, then it has to be cognizant of itself and it must exist, right? And the Upanishads clearly say that the Absolute is Ananda, joy. Ananda Mayo Vyasat. So the, the Goswamis, they've understood this point very well. Absolute is joy. So it must have an existential manifestation and a cognitive manifestation. That means, as Bhagwan, this is joy, Leela. Brahman, there's no Leela in Brahman. And Paramatma, yeah, he has some Leela in relation to the dead world, bringing people out of death row. He's like the governor, giving his, you know, what do they call it? Intervening at the last moment. He's saving them, overseeing the show. He's letting the jivas have a leash and wander and so forth. This is a Shristi Leela. But yet that has a private life of his own and so many associates and that is not the case. As Narayan in Vaikuntha he does and in Krishna he does. He's had wonderful people, wonderful type of devotees with extraordinary love surrounded by them. So if the Absolute is joy, and they say, well, there must be, Krishna must ultimately be the ultimate feature of the Absolute Truth. Is just see that all he does is enjoy. Look at his nature of his Leela, even compared to that in Vaikuntha. It's just a constant 
playground. He has no formal duties, really, to speak of. Narayan may have to attend different functions. and Krishna is just playing. So, Paramatma and Bhagavan and, and Brahman, these are aspects of himself, representing cognizance, representing existence. There's Ananda and there's cognizance in Brahman, but existence is most prominent there. There's Ananda, cognizance and existence in Paramatma, but the cognizance is most prominent. And in Bhagavan, there's existence, cognizance, and Ananda, but Ananda is most prominent. This is the idea. So, as devotees, then, we are interested in that process by which Bhagavan can be known, and Swayam Bhagavan can be known, and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu can be known as that Swayam Bhagavan, but he's not different from Krishna. And the path that we take to do that, therefore, it incorporates whatever is of value in the other paths that lead to realization of these other aspects of the Absolute Brahman or Paramatma for the Jnanis and the Yogis. Sometimes an example is given of the sun. So, like I said earlier, you can see the ray of the sun. You can say you've seen the sun, but there's more to it than that. There's a world inside the sun, they say. There's certainly a world that comes from the sun. Why not one inside of it? Where would our world be without sun? So how much life must be in it? Although it's hard for us to understand. We don't have fire bodies. It has such power to give life. So, it's like you may know the sun as an orb. You may, uh, as a ray, you may know it as an orb in the sky, or you may, may go there. So you may know absolute as Brahman, you may know as Paramatma. In other words, what? You may know a ray of the sun, you may know what the sun does for the world, or you may know the life of the sun itself. It has something to do on its own, and as just a byproduct of that, it's energizing the world and so on. So something, this kind of example, is given to help us understand these three phases of the Absolute Truth. In this way, Krishna Skandarash Goswami has given a very important verse following his predecessors, derived from Bhagavatam, Satsandarbha, and so forth. And he set out, this is his task, in Chaitanya Charitamrita, in many respects, to establish a revolutionary religious idea at the time that Krishna is the source of Narayan. That is revolutionary. That Brahman is his halo. See how much the Gyanis are missing. They're just contacting his halo, and they don't, they don't know about him, so how limited is their realization, although transcendent. And the yogis, what is their reach into transcendence? What have they realized? So this is a revolutionary idea that Krishna is the source of Narayan. In the times that this book was written, that was unheard of. So he will go on and give so many evidences how to understand it and so forth and so on. And when you hear about them all, then it seems like oh, it's just common sense. Like you take Bhagavatam, it said in two places that it's made of ten subjects. Nine are sheltered, one is the shelter. The shelter is Krishna, others are sheltered. One of those topics, Ishanukata, all the avatars, talks about all the avatars. They're sheltered, under the shelter-giving principle, Krishna. Go to the Gita, Krishna says, what does Krishna say in the Gita about this? He's, uh, one of the things he said, many things, but one thing he says, we quoted it earlier, oh, I, a glance, by glancing at material nature, I impregnate it with consciousness. And 
start the world in motion. Now, is that what Krishna does? Krishna says he does that. But if we look at it, we know, oh, Shankarshan, Mahavishnu does that. Oh, that means that an aspect of you, through him, you do that. Krishna says at the end of the 10th chapter. All the wonderful and beautiful things that I've talked about in this world that are representatives of me, I am the bodies of water, I am the ocean of the movable things, I am the Himalayas and so forth. All these things, yeah, they, they, I, all this is but a spark of, of the splendor of one aspect of myself. Who is that one aspect of himself? That is the Mahavishnu from who the whole world is coming. He's only one, one spark of my splendor. So many statements like this throughout. When you read Goswami's works, and then you think, how could anybody read otherwise? But no one could see such things before. And attached to their own tradition, they argue against them feebly. Even when Gaudiya Vaishnavism is giving life to their own sampradaya at the present time, like Ramanuja sampradaya, Madhva sampradaya, and so forth, they're getting currency in the world because of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, because of our lineage of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Through our Prabhupada, for example, our Bhaktivinoda Paribara, we should be proud to be members of such a, such a, not only the Sampradaya of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, this particular lineage, and and be encouraged to understand these, all these wonderful points, the wonderful theological and religious points, very rich and very, as I say, revolutionary, especially in the milieu of, of the time as worth. Now we're in different times, and so you may think, well, I don't know how relevant all this is, and and so forth, and, and it's important for you to understand the heritage that you're part of, and how it came about, and what efforts the previous acharyas went through to establish these points, because without establishing them, the practices that we do, we won't have the energy to do so, the enthusiasm to pursue them. Krishna says in the Gita, I'm the source of everything, and knowing me is that one gets the energy to practice the kind of bhajan, to do the kind of spiritual practice that captures me, conquers me. Because if you know that Krishna is the Supreme Personality of God. What do you know? You know who the Supreme Enjoyer is. You know who the Supreme Taker is. And if you figured out, as you should have by now, that life is about giving, by giving you live, not by taking. By taking you die. By taking you're only feasting on dead things, so how can you live? You understand? (laughs) Feasting on the dead, like a vulture. What kind of life is that? But by giving, then you live. So if you figured that out, then all you have to figure out is, where can I give the most? So two things are necessary. Well, you have a certain amount of energy to give, but it will be given comprehensively when you can find the person that can take the most. Right? If you find the center, the complete taker, that by giving there, in that one place, then you're giving the most because it's it's just like you have a body, right? So there are a number of holes in this body, and now you have to you want to you want to give to the body. It's needy, so you want to give it some food. So you got to know which hole is going to work, right? You can't put it in your ear hole. That's not going to work. You can't put it in your in your nostril. That's not going to work. You find the mouth. It goes to the mouth. Okay, and what does the mouth do? Mouth takes it to the stomach. And when it hits the stomach, then that food is miraculously transformed, energizes the whole body. So we have to find this. 
we want to give, do good for others, where can we give the most? That's the only thing left to find out. That's what these Goswamis are telling us. Here it is. This is it. This is it. They're also telling us that, that giving is living. That's bhakti. And giving the knowledge of where is the ultimate taker. Krishna, we describe him as the supreme enjoyer, right? He says in the Gita, I can take unlimitedly and give back unlimitedly. So by giving in the one spot, everything is accomplished. Like if you want to nourish the tree, where are you going to pour the water? On the branches? On the top? On the trunk? No, on the roots. It eats through the roots. Its mouth is underground. You're going to feed the tree in that way, nourish the tree. So they've helped us to with so much theology and philosophy and taking advantage of revelation. It's a secret. You can't know it on your own. It's revealed. If the center speaks to us about himself, then we can become centered on him. If you want to be perfectly happy, then you have to have the perfect knowledge how to act. All action is fueled by some knowledge, right? So you want to be perfectly happy, you have to have perfect knowledge. How will you get the perfect knowledge? You have to have a perfect method. But you're imperfect. So what will your perfect method be? The perfect method would be if perfect knowledge expresses itself in relation to you perfectly, as it can. That is the descending path of bhakti coming to us. So we don't make up the path, but it's come through revelation. He's extended his hand to us. Come. Grab onto that. Give all your energy to the center, identified as he has been by the Goswamis as Krishna. Happens to be very charming. He's the supreme enjoyer, but see how everyone is nourished by uh, making him the center of their life. What kind of life is there in Goloka? So in this way, the Goswamis have done a great service to us. They've taken from the reveal. They said, you cannot get this just from your head, just from thinking from Revelation. Now let us sort through the Revelation, what's out there. Let's get to the essence of it. It's Kali Yuga. We don't have a lot of time. It's Kali Yuga. Time is short. People are stupid. Uh, so let's just cut to the chase here. Get to the essence. And here it is, in short form. Krishna's two Bhagavan Sayam. Krishna the source of everything. How to give, then, to him. How to locate him and give comprehensively. And nourish yourself comprehensively and, and everything else. The whole world becomes nourished by this. This is our task to center ourselves on Krishna, center the world on Krishna. Huge consuming task. Spend your life trying to do this. This is time well spent. So this way you have to understand the practical side of all this, all these names and concepts and what these books are and and so forth. Uh, they're, they're very uh, important to human society. This human society is adrift looking for this. They're on the take, but they should be giving. And then a lot of them figure that out and they feel good about giving and helping and so forth and helping the starving people in Africa and arranging for a big concert and, and see, what do you get? You get your picture on Time magazine. <laughs> Cover. And uh, your, use your money from your computer empire to help other people then see you get you get recognition so forth you get by giving let's see no everybody knows yeah this is this is where it's at oh they they gave so much 
course they have so much so you think so. That's not no no, you should give proportionately according to what you have. That's the message, right? You can't say, well, he's Bill Gates. He's you know what's the guy's name? Bono? Joe Bono or something? I don't know his first name. Bono maybe that's his first name. I don't know. Musician, you all know him. So he or he has a lot of money, so he can give. You know, the message is everyone should give according to the, the, the what they have. Then there's an effort made to educate people where to give, what will be the best cause, how to do it the best. That's what the Goswamis are trying to do. But if we don't understand the tattva, the philosophy, so it seems like, well, you know, this is Krishna. Where is he? How do you give to him? Okay. Oh, he's got a deity form. You mean you're going to just make an offering to that statue and that's going to be... What's that going to do for the world? Try it. You see what it does for you, what kind of person it makes you. The more you do Krishna Bhakti, the more soft your heart will become. If you do right, then it will make you feel compassion for others. So you think, I must be going in the right place. This is softening my heart. I was hard-hearted previously. Now if we do bhakti and we become hard-hearted, then that's a problem. We've seen that also in people. That means they have a skewed approach to bhakti. World-denying. Bhakti is world-embracing, actually. Jnana is world-denying. Bhakti is ultimately world-embracing. But it seeks to tell us to step back enough from the world to see it for what it is so that you can embrace it with a proper understanding of what's what. That's the, the function of the renunciation, to move back from the, our attachments, which cause us to see in a biased way, to see objectively, not only what it's not, but what it is, what it is in relation to Bhagwan, And then, oh, you see it in relation to Bhagwan, and no problem. And I see it for, for its full potential. Then I have the power through that vision, if I act according, to bring the whole world to life to bring the dead people back from the dead. Would that be a good thing? <laughs> that would be desirable, huh? That's what we're doing, bringing people back from the dead. Because matter is dead and people are becoming like matter. The more you identify with matter, the more you become like matter, limited, confined, something that existed once but doesn't anymore. So it's important to understand these uh, these arguments. Then you become very much fixed in this. And also to understand these things will help us to understand Krishna Leela because it might just appear like a story to us. But these people that are absorbed in that, what is the, what is, they have all these books behind this. And probably used to say in a simple way, they think we are worshiping a stone. But do you think we have all these 60 books we are studying just to worship a stone? There must be more to it than that. What kind of stone is that? It's a fact. So we hear the Leela and it's full of unbelievable things. And the Goswamis heard the Leela and they said, well, that is unbelievable, isn't it? Wow. Just see the Achintya Shakti of Krishna, inconceivable power of Krishna. Actually, the philosophy, if you really study it, you can understand, oh yeah, it must be Krishna, Krishna Leela. It has to play itself out like this. How charming. How extraordinary it is. Wow, I never saw the world like that. Let's do, that's what's going on. It's all the Leela of Krishna in one sense or another. That's behind it all. Don't think that Mahavishnu is not also motivated by Krishna Leela. He is. He's hoping Krishna will appear in the world, in his creation, make an appearance there so he can get the darshan, because he can't go to Goloka. He's too big. <laughs> <laughs>
people are small there. <laughs> so that's also all motivated by that. Krishna Leela is, is behind everything. It's a charming idea. But you see, you cannot see the world like that now. This is the problem. The Goswamis, they, they look through that lens. They had their heart in that place and they could see the world like this. That's possible for you. But you, you have to take advantage of, them, of the wealth that they've given in all these texts. And it's very helpful to see how these books connect to one another and how it's an organic thing and it's a consistent message in so many ways, from so many angles, they're stressing the same point again and again so that you can finally get it. You need to hear this modern people living in the world. It's easy for you to be distracted by thinking other things are more important. These books are irrelevant. I liked that at one time, but now I think there's something more important to do. We find this happening to people. I don't want that to happen to any of you. You should be sitting here helping other people understand these things, experiencing it yourself and wanting to offer to other people to give in a big way. Any question? I was wondering, because sometimes you read the Satchit, they're connected with uh, Brahma and Paramatma. Sometimes their meaning gets interchanged. Yeah, that's true. I've written about that. Yeah. Mostly we think that uh, Brahman is Sat, Paramatma is Chit, and Bhagwan is Ananda. Satchit Ananda. But because of Paramatma, other people have written in another way sometimes. Paramatma is connected with the world, every aspect of existence, overseeing it. And sometimes he might be identified with Sat. And Brahman is consciousness, identified with Chit. But mostly, for the most part, in, in our lineage, then, and in, in most Gaudi lineages too, I believe that it's uh, Brahman, Paramatman, Bhagavan, Satchit, Ananda, like that. You see how this is all everywhere. Again, what is the origin of all this? This Ladini, Ladini, Sambit, Sandini. This is what life's about. Satchit, Ananda, existing being aware of your existence, and then aware of the purpose of your existence, which is what? Joy. That's right. <laughs> which is no purpose then, just to play. It's an attractive idea. It's a very comprehensive metaphysic worldview. So much literature to support it. There are so many fly-by-night ideas here and there. This is coming from a certain type of people. What is the character of those people? The condition of their heart? All this you have to think about. And you be wear your tilak very proudly or your neck beads. Yes, I'm a member of this lineage. Otherwise, if you don't understand these things, then you don't apply yourself properly in bhakti and then you're embarrassed to be a Hare Krishna. Of course, your generation, some of you are not embarrassed to be something different and odd, so. <laughs> I understand that. It's worked to your advantage <laughs> in this case. What else? Any other questions? Yes? You talk a little about, like, and I don't know a lot, but sometimes you've mentioned self-forgetfulness in the Lila. Hmm. And I started thinking, how can a person who's in this, like, swarup? It means that forgetting self-interest, 
In other words, at one point you may be selfish. At another point you may calculate that by giving I can get. Or that giving is the best thing. I should do it. I should give to God. That's where comprehensive giving can be done. So it's the right thing to do. Therefore, whatever the parent cost may be, I shall give. That is called self-sacrifice, right? So there's some calculation involved there. You're thinking about it. Self-forgetfulness, what I mean by that is giving without thinking about it. It's going on automatically. And in Goloka, they've forgotten completely their own self-interest. They're simply, in fact, it might even appear that they're acting at the cost of their self-interest. Look at the gopis. In the point of view of the Leela, what was really in their interest was not to run off in the middle of the night with a, with a young boy. That was against their interest. They could be found out. Then what would become of them? What would become of the village? It would be marred. Oh, the girls in the village, they do this. Married girls run off with some other fellow in the night. What kind of village is that? So they forgot that. They just loved Krishna. Spontaneous, there's no calculation. They don't serve Krishna because he's God. He should be served. That's Vaikuntha. That's out of duty. So our love may be motivated by fear. What will happen to us if I don't do this? By prospect, what good will come to me if I do do this? Or above that, let me do this because it's the right thing to do. It's my duty. And eventually, you're just doing it. You're not thinking why I should do this. You're just doing it. They're pranai. They love Krishna. So it's like they don't see any difference between Krishna and themselves. So they're serving Krishna's interest only. And then automatically they're being nourished. It appears that they have self-interest on the surface. This is the mystery of the Leela. The coward boys say, Hey, let's go taste those tall fruits. We're hungry. You can smell the aroma of them. The talvan. And there's a big jackass there that's been not letting anybody in. So, Krishna, we're hungry. Let's go. But if you study the language of the Bhagavatam, when they make this kind of statement, you can see, oh, they're saying it out of love for Krishna. They're facilitating, the fostering, the unfolding of Krishna's pastimes. It's out of prem. They don't really have any hunger. They're completely identified with Krishna. They're self-forgetful in that sense. And again, it almost looks as if they're working against their self-interest. They should be worshipping Narayan and doing meditation. And Why are they just chasing after this young boy and, and uh, playing away their days and gopis stealing off with him at night in the householders? You know, they're all just, the mother is sort of detached to her son. You know, you should be detached from your son. So they're self-forgetful in that way. Does that help? Yeah. yeah. I was thinking another thing, too. Yeah. It's also like, let me go a little further. So say, let's say someone, let's say you, you're walking on the street and you see the building is on fire and a child inside is crying and you just run in. You don't think about it. You just go. You save the child. And when you come out, they put a medal on your chest and they want to interview you. And what are you thinking? You say, well, I really wasn't thinking at all. I just... I just went, you know, I just did it. You know, occasion rose and I, and I just, but you're a hero. I mean, hey, think about that. You know, he, that's not usually the way it, we don't calculate. Hey, I could go in there. I could, I could be on the news tonight. My face on every, I think I'll try it. That'd be good for me. 
No, they just do it automatically. So something like that, spontaneously, without thinking. This is the pitch of love. From duty, with dutiful love, to self-forgetfulness. So Vaikuntha is kind of a calculated love. It's Narayan. He should be respected. They love him. But when it reaches the pitch of Goloka, then it's unrecognizable. It's almost unrecognizable. It's so far in the direction of love that it looks like lust. If you go far enough to the left, you're coming out on the other side, right? If you go far enough east, then you start coming west again. So like this, it's so, so far that it, it, on its face it looks like, looks like selfishness. It's actually self-forgetfulness. What else? Yeah, I was thinking, I recall that there was a mention in Brihad Bhagavatam where Gopakumar seemed to kind of like lose his sense of identity or something in the Lila or something like that. So is that also possible, that kind of self-forgetfulness that you actually like forget your identity or something like that? I'm not sure what you're, what you're referring to there, but um, when the cowherd boys drink the water from the Kaliya Lake, then they, they pass out. I mean, like that, forget themselves. Maybe, yeah. They can forget themselves in, in the context of the Leela. I'm talking about it in a philosophical way. Mm-hmm. You're kind of talking about it. I mean, do they ever forget who they are? And right. um, you know, yeah, in a sense, in the way that we do and do inappropriate things and, and so forth. I mean, that's, that's part of the sport of the Leela. They get intoxicated with one another and forget themselves, and then they remember, oh, we better not do that, we might get caught, in that sense, yeah. But they don't become illusioned, forget who they are, and like in this material world, everyone's illusioned as to who they are, and that never happens. All right, so we'll stop there then. Sri Chaitanya Chaitamrita Ki Jai. Puri Vaishnava Guru Parampara Ki Jai. Or Bhakti Vinayana. Or Bhakti Vinayana.